from producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo. Thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. Kiss the Future. New documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply. How'd the show get so popular, Josh? Well, by the grace of God, first off, by you guys, second off. But let me read you a quote to start the show from our buddy Captain Cons, or as you may know him now, Captain Casual. Quote, I propose we stop with the countdowning as many days into college football until we are under three weeks away. So, friends, as Meemaw once said, it's easy to build an army when the fight is this obvious. I welcome you in. We are high atop a star-studded downtown Nashville, Tennessee. You might wonder, how star-studded? What if I told you Gelby, Big Game Dane, and Dennis Dodd were 30 feet away from me as we speak? Just immeasurable pressure on the show to be pulled off flawlessly tonight. SEC Media Days, right around the corner, starts up tomorrow. We'll be over there every day. We will have a show Tuesday night. We will have a show Thursday night. So we're getting back in that three-show-per-week gear. But as for tonight, we're not doing SEC Media Day preview, mainly because it's not a football game, so why would you preview it? I want to talk to you about the state of Texas just getting ready to in a good way. Texas is about to blow up, not University of alone. I mean A&M, I mean Baylor, I mean TCU, maybe even SMU. I got some stuff I want to talk to you about that, frankly, I wanted to put on the Tuesday show, but we were too jam-packed. Your opinions of Hugh Freeze are in, and they are scathing, and they are in many cases fair, in some other cases unfair, but we will continue our opinion of series tonight, and I'll give you some thoughts. I got what-ifs. I got bold predictions. We got the spotlight on Clemson tonight. I got to talk to you about this whole NCAA Tennessee thing. It is Sunday night, July 16th, the year of our Lord, 2023, and I'm happy to have you with us. They're watching in Paris, Missouri, McNeil, Mississippi. You know, someone checked in from Ho Chi Minh over in Vietnam. Thank you so much for that. Not sure what time it is, but thank you for that. And Johns Creek, Georgia. As I said, we're going to have a live show Tuesday night, kids. Same time as usual, 8 Eastern, 7 Central, and looking forward to having a lot of coaches on the show this week. And some of them may even be uploaded tomorrow. You never know what's going to happen when you're over there at SEC Media Days. But that's not what I wanted to lead the show with. I wanted to lead the show with this. The state of Texas, football hotbed, right? Oh, great high school football, blah, blah, blah. All that's true. So I don't say blah in a derogatory manner. I just mean, what has it really mattered as of late? University of Texas has not played for a conference title since 2009. Texas A&M. You understand what happened there last year. And so there have been mixed results on the grandest of stages out there. And therefore, I feel the need to tell you tonight, long before anyone else does, that there's a chance we're on the brink of something, I think, in the state of Texas. And I'm talking about University of. And I'm talking about Texas A&M, TCU, Texas Tech, Baylor, Houston, as of five minutes ago, is now a Power 5 institution. But I also want to throw Rhett Lashley and SMU in here as well. If you just looked at the programs. You can talk about trajectory. You can talk about recent results, but I'm talking about here and now moving forward. Would the light not be blinking green on every single one of these? And by blinking green, I don't mean every one of them is playoff bound this year. Far from it. What I do mean is you take where they are now and take where they were uh, three or four years ago, and then take where you think they could be three or four years from now. And over that three or four year span, don't we feel a lot better about the future of Texas? I say we. I know I do. So you can either agree with me or not. 
Texas A&M, here's the bottom line, guys. Here's the long and short of it. Either they're going to get it done this year or they'll go find someone who can get it done. There are a lot of folks in the advanced analytical market who would tell you everything else is in place to win at Texas A&M. And if they don't get it done, it is a glaring failure in reflection on the head coach there. And it would kind of be like the old grab claw machine. Colin, when I first got here every single night, we would metaphorically use the grab claw machine and we would put our quarter in and we, we, we would take the claw and it would pick up something and it would drop it. And what if I dropped a top seven head coach at Texas A&M and kept everything else the same? So one of two ways we're going to get some action there this year. I've got Dave Aranda down at Baylor who has tied in his first three seasons at Baylor for the most wins in the history of the program. Sonny Dykes at Texas Tech, we've spoken a lot about. I'm about to again. TCU literally just played for a national championship. Houston's finally in the P5 ranks. And so there's a lot going on down there. But also talent acquisition, which is the name of the game, is something everyone's doing well. It's not just a Texas thing. It's not an A&M thing. Listen to this stat. Courtesy of producer Jesse, outside of Texas A&M, who all they did was have the top-rated class of all time two cycles ago. So outside of A&M, Texas, Texas Tech, TCU, Baylor, Houston, they all had the best recruiting ranking of their last five years this past cycle. Every one of them is trending up in talent acquisition. Several staffs are getting after it out there. And there's a unique sort of complexion when you go staff to staff. It's not all cookie cutter. And it never should be in the state of Texas, but it's not all cookie cutter out there. All these teams, the ones I just mentioned, they've all also won eight games at least once in the past two years. I think three of them have put up double-digit win seasons. Of course, you know about what TCU just did. There are reasons for this that are just starting to take root. Uh, there are reasons for this that I think will extend far and wide. I don't think that you've seen the waves really hit the shore yet. I think you've seen the earthquake. I think you've seen the early signs of the ripple effect and the waves and I don't want to go as far as to say tsunami, given what happened off the coast of Alaska this morning. But again, metaphorically speaking, you get what I mean by that. NIL is a huge deal in Texas. This is a state more so than any other state out there that prides itself on its resources and the money those resources produce. And again, that's not just a Texas and Texas A&M thing. Portal has been particularly huge here for the same reason it could be and will be eventually in the state of Florida. A lot of kids come from Texas. Not all of them stay in state. And any given cycle, you're inevitably going to have a crop of kids that went far and wide that get homesick. You're going to have a crop of kids far and wide that had four or five stars next to their name that for whatever reason don't see it work out at their initial place of commitment. What do they revert to? If you're from Houston, if you're from Dallas or Miami or Los Angeles and you go off to Alabama or you go off to Ohio State or Michigan or Penn State and it doesn't work out, what might you revert to? You might revert to let me get closer to home because the things my second go around that matter now probably are different than what mattered my first go around. It's like a magnet effect. The portal, when it comes to talent rich states, Texas being one of them, has a magnet effect. And so you're always going to see schools even like SMU. Rhett Lashley and those guys have had three consecutive top 20 portal classes. Did you know that? Maybe not. Maybe you're not following the G5 portal ranks, but don't worry. That's what we pay Bradley the Associate to just sit in there and stare at a computer screen and look for all day. There's also unique energy with a lot of these staffs in Texas. Everyone talks about Steve Sarkeesian. Everyone's talking about Jimbo Fisher and the move they just made at offensive coordinator to hopefully rectify the situation out there. Texas Tech with Joey McGuire 
is like a high school staff with three injection of steroids that just make them a college staff. It's wonderful. It's a great, unique energy. It's so unique to Lubbock. It is like a guy who was raised in the topsoil out there, and it, it's so uniquely what Texas Tech's about. And also, they've had three straight seasons where they've improved record-wise. So, you know, you're starting to see results uh, be delivered out there as well. I think also, if you look at Baylor, as I said about Dave Aranda, it's so weird because people get a warped idea of how we should be talking about certain programs. And it's, it's five-minute memory in a lot of cases. So people don't even remember, for example, the guy won the Big 12 two years ago. You heard me right. Baylor won the Big 12 championship two years ago. No one really thinks about that right now because you have six and seven fresh in your mind. And six and seven is a disappointment, right? Right, Josh, yeah, because all the preview magazine seasons said that they should win nine games. You know, that's just automatically what you should do once you win a conference title. That's not true at Baylor. Even with the six and seven baked in last year, Dave Aranda, three seasons in, is tied for the best three-year start in program history. And we had to go back to the 20s to find where we had to go to see who he was tied with. And also, you know we love Aranda on this show because he's far more cerebral than your average coach. He's blunt. He's honest to a fault. Some people around him believe honest to a fault. I have told you the story many times, but since Dennis is here, I'll tell it at least one more time. We were out there two years ago for the Oklahoma game, and we got to talk with him a little bit after the game. He's sitting there saying, yeah, we just pulled this upset, and that's wonderful, and all that. But I am disappointed that it took us losing last week. They just lost to TCU. And he said, the reality is we got a performance today that was probably inspired by last week, and that's on me. They should play this way every week. Why should it take an external factor like a loss? Well, you know I love that stuff. And so I love Dave Aranda, and he's doing really good things there. Houston, this is generic. Whether it's Dana Holgerson five years from now leading the charge there or not, Houston is now a Power 5 school. Houston and Central Florida have been sitting in that sort of catbird seat at the G5 level for a long time. Major cities parked right in the middle of Orlando and Houston, respectively. And now Houston gets promoted to the Big 12, and not only are they getting promoted to the Big 12, you're going to have a serious power vacuum that forms the minute Texas and OU hit the exit door after this upcoming season. Who fills it? Maybe Houston. I don't know. At the very least, it's reason to buy stock in Houston. TCU, I don't really need to sell you much on the prospects of a team that just played for a national championship, but that was Sonny Dyke's first year, and all he had to do was drive across town to take his new job. There's a lot about the way college football is shaped right now that is conducive to the state of Texas blowing up. It's nice, it's nice to be able to use the letters SWC on the program. You know, a lot of our audience was not around, myself included, when the Southwest Conference was in its heyday. But boy, we've seen the documentaries. And I own a Southwest Conference t-shirt, and proud to say I do. And I know that we cannot see the resurrection of the Southwest Conference. And certainly the regionality aspect of college football has been ripped to shreds. But what you can see in the state of Texas, even if certain teams are in this conference and other teams are in that conference, is you really can see a unique Texas culture sort of start to bleed through, whether it's TCU or Texas, whether it's Baylor or Houston. You can start to see that bleed through. Ironically, these are former member institutions in most cases of the aforementioned Southwest Conference. I'm excited about this, but you know as well as I do, it all circles back around to two names this year. It all circles back around to Steve Sarkeesian and what they do at Texas. 
as the preseason Big 12 championship favorite again, the favorite to win a game they haven't appeared in, I kid you not, since 2009. And it circles back around to their neighbors in College Station. It circles back around to Jimbo Fisher because really, if Texas wins seven games this year and Jimbo fails to make a bowl game or they're barely teetering on bowl eligibility, there's probably not a lot of attention on the rest of the state. That's not fair, but it's, you know, it's not a fairy tale world. College football, not a fairy tale world. It could be, though, you know, if they come through and then all of a sudden downstream of your Texas's and Texas A&M's, you got a lot of other schools that are more than carrying their weight, which is already happening. It just gets exclamated and magnified or maybe even amplified if that's the case at the top of the ladder. I feel like I spoke my piece on the state of Texas. Um, believe it or not, I'm happy to have you guys with us. Let me recrank my computer here. Uh, this is called a stall tactic. I appreciate you guys watching, uh, especially the live audience. Here's what I'm going to tell you, and I can't tell you anymore right now. Coming very soon. Sounds like a movie theater preview. Coming soon. There are going to be reasons upon reasons to be watching the show live. Now, you'll still get the full show watching the replay or listening to the replay, and I'm not telling you otherwise. I'm just telling you there may be some certain cherries on top of the Sunday that we deliver if you're watching live. Above and beyond just me preferring you and you know me sitting over and go copying and pasting and, and saying, hey, in the live chat. Yeah, oh, that's great. I'm sure that makes your day. But at the end of the day, you want a return on your live viewing investment, and that we're working on delivering for you. So what I was going to tell you anyway was may surprise you that some people the other day took umbrage, took issue, not with me sipping from the chalice, but the amount of times I sip from the chalice. And to that I say, I'm sorry, and I'll try to not do it again. You want to play a little game of what if? Let's stack these papers. Let's play a game of what if. What if, for example, here's the way it works. What if LSU makes the college football playoff this year? That comes from our buddy Ghost. What happens? If they make the playoff, it's not the wildest of predictions. I think what would happen first off is Brian Kelly starts to see a lot of history rewritten about him. If LSU makes the playoff this year, you better keep those screenshots handy. You better go back and gather as much documented history of the internet as possible when it comes to what people said about him. Because, buddy, they'll start whitewashing it. And they'll start doing it in a hurry. And all of a sudden, you'll hear phrases like this. You'll hear phrases like, well, everyone knew Brian Kelly was going to win. It was just a matter of when, not if. Mm, was it, sir? Because I have a screenshot here which shows that you feel he was a better fit in South Bend. You also made fun of his non-regional dialect 37 times, and you posted 17 gifts of him dancing with a recruit and said, this is the worst fit imaginable for LSU. Was that you, sir? No, I deleted those. Yes, yes, but screenshots are forever. That's going to happen, and that'll happen by the truckload especially if LSU makes the playoff this year. Because believe it or not, there are some folks still holding out hope that last year, where, if you've forgotten, they won the West and beat Alabama in the process. Last year, some people are still holding out hope, was just a little flash in the pan. These things happen every now and then, you know? I don't think it was. You know my thoughts on that. But what does it do to Alabama, since we're playing the what-if game? If, if this team's in the playoff, what does it do to Alabama? In 2019, for example... LSU was in the playoff and won the title at the expense of Bama. They had to go through them, in Tuscaloosa no less. Is that what happens again this year? Or maybe does LSU 
beat Alabama, but that's Bama's only loss, and then they're both in the postseason picture. That would have to be answered. Also, do we have another Tier 1 team at the head table of college football if LSU goes to the playoff this year? You got to think so. Now, I think the follow-up, if you go right back to the question I just asked, could be, well, yeah, if LSU elevates, does it come at the expense of someone? And whomst might that someone be? And also, you know what else would happen if, if LSU makes the playoff? That would just be, I think this is worthy of a paper pop, that would be Brian Kelly's seventh straight double-digit win season. You heard me right, kids. He didn't take a break. He didn't say, I'll be back next year. Seven straight double-digit win seasons. So if LSU makes the playoff, obviously a really big deal for like 15 different reasons. Next up, Jared wants to know what happens if Pitt wins the ACC for the second time in three years. Jared, I'm glad that you added that on the end. Really good Phil Collins song I played for Jesse today called Do You Remember? Heartbreaking. Um, do you remember what happened in 2021? Got a lot of diehards in our audience. Does anyone off the top of their head recall the ACC championship game matchup? How many, how many of you have found time to watch the replay of Pitt versus Wake Forest 2021 recently? Answer, not too many. And if you have, good on you. Because I'm, I'm in the former camp. I haven't watched this game. 45-21. to 21. Pat Narduzzi and company, they won that game. They won the ACC title. We're asking now what happens if they do it again this year? Hmm. Well, their over-under win total is seven. They got plus 2,000 odds to win the ACC championship. Hmm. 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 I'm, I'm thinking to myself, what would the reaction of the nation be? Of course. Of course, on a program like this, we would give Pitt their due. Because that's what we're known for. If you don't believe us, ask our friends on Reddit. But I don't think that would be the case elsewhere. I think elsewhere, friends, it saddens me to say, but I think elsewhere, the conversation would be about what Clemson didn't do, what Florida State didn't do, and just the, the, the most of a bunch of least desirable options happen to be Pitt. They can be hateful like that out there. Again, that's why we don't traffic in such things. But I think that's what it would be about. Now, I will tell you from a Pat Narduzzi standpoint, think about how that would validate his take on the portal. If you don't know what I'm talking about there, remember this time last year, kind of around this time last year, Jordan Addison had won the Bolitnikoff, and so he leaves, he goes to USC. Pat Narduzzi cries tampering. Who knows, maybe he was right. Uh, but the point is, he didn't stop. So Pat Narduzzi kept speaking out. And this past year, this past spring and, and you know, a few months ago, whenever that was, he was doing an interview and he said, you know what? People got mad at me because I kept claiming tampering and I was specific and I was alleging that Lincoln Riley and his staff tampered to get Jordan Addison. Everyone got mad, but guess what? Nobody came after any of our players this cycle because they were too afraid they would get called out. And I came on this show and I waved the old Pat Narduzzi flag. I was, I was proud of him, happy for him. He's, he's a talker. He absolutely is. So if that's not your brand, if you want a more robotic type, don't watch pit football. But if you do, and there are good tickets available in Heinz Field or whatever they call that place. Now, if you do, he's for you. I would look at it if they win the ACC this year, and I would say, wow, I wonder how many of his players potentially would have left or maybe would have gotten poached that didn't because he took a stand. Hmm. Hmm. Those of you out there with facial hair, stroke that chin. Wow. 
That's a ripple effect, isn't it? And also, it would be their fifth straight winning season, which contrary to college football playoff promos and what they tell you does still matter. And there is the small matter, since I'm using that word so much, of Phil Dracovic transferring from BC to Pitt. If they win the ACC this year, obviously that means he had a dynamite year, I would imagine. What might the mock draft community think about that? I got another little mock draft hypothetical. Let's go to the next one, Colin. Let's go up to the Pacific Northwest. And let's go to John's what if. He said, what if Michael Penix wins the Heisman Trophy? Well, John, we would give give a hardcore golf clap for him if he did. I wouldn't be shocked about it. The odds market reflects that Michael Penix has a really good shot. He had a good year last year. I, I think sometimes it, especially this time of year, it does not hurt us to remind ourselves what we were saying a year ago. So a year ago, Penix had been injury riddled and they had been turnover prone when he was in Indiana. And so he transferred to Washington. Did you care? I didn't. I didn't a whole lot. I didn't circle him and say that's going to be the difference maker on the West Coast. Well, he was one because he didn't get hurt and he didn't turn the ball over a whole lot. And they were phenomenal last year. And so this year, as a result of that, he's on a lot of people's radars. If he wins the Heisman Trophy, well, obviously, he's got a statue on his mantle until the end of time. But I would look around him, and I would ask, well, what did that do for Washington? In this scenario, they, they had a really good season. Did they win the Pac-12? Are they in the playoffs? And also, then you start extending way out beyond just an individual player or coach and start asking about the program. What do we know about the future of Washington football by that point? And I'm asking you that question because I think Kalen DeBoer's stock is already rising as a head coach. If he's got a Heisman Trophy winning quarterback out there, if they improve that pass defense any, which was 100th in yards per game allowed last year, you know, if they had, if they had that green arrow pointing up on all aspects of the program and he wins over nine and a half or 10 games, which is their total right now, if he does all that, he is going to be an extremely scorching hot commodity in the head coaching market. And the reason I'm asking about Washington is because that's a really good place to coach. But if it looks like they're going to be tied to the Pac-12 for the foreseeable future, it's far less a desirable place to be. So we fast forward to December or January when this would be happening. And have we seen any headline from the Big Ten? Have we heard any rumblings? Has Dennis Dodd broken a story on CBSSports.com that indicates Washington may be headed elsewhere? Well, if that's the case, then maybe he sticks it out there. If it's not the case, maybe half a dozen jobs come open that look better than the one he has. That Heisman Trophy win by his quarterback could impact the market in more ways than one. And the last what if on the docket tonight comes from Jeremy. And he said, what if Texas and Oklahoma both miss out on the Big 12 title game? And Jeremy forgot to put the word again on the end, but I am adding again. What if Texas and OU miss out on this game again? Number one in odds and number two in odds. Again, just like last year. And but they both missed out. You remember that? Texas did get a 49-zip win over Oklahoma, but it didn't matter at the end of the day because neither of them made the conference title game. I've said two times in the show already, and I'll do it again because Texas needs to hear it. You hadn't made the conference title game since 09. This would make it, I think, three years since OU has been there. Uh, what's the context here? So we're playing the what-if game. Well, what's the context? Did a Kansas State and a TCU blow up? Did the entire conference collectively cannibalize itself and you just had a bunch of 
scrap metal out there and you chose a couple of three lost teams to play in Dallas and it was an afterthought of a game, did multiple teams grab the reins? Because Texas, they made the Big 12 title game in 2018. I keep saying that. They haven't won it since 2009. I hope I'll be forgiven for that. I probably, I don't deserve to be forgiven for that. So go ahead and give it to me, immunity. But if this happens, they're out the door. It does not matter if they go 0-12 or 12-0 this year. They're out the door to the SEC right after they turn the lights off on the season. So did we have a situation where a Texas Tech just grabbed the reins or, or Kansas State continues to have their hands on the reins? And what I'm asking is, once those two head out the door, has, has one or multiples of these teams entrenched themselves as much more than just the best of a bunch of mediocrity? Because that's how the country's going to default, by the way. Whether you deserve that or not, the rest of the country's going to look at those two big dogs, walk out the door, and they're going to say, all right, why should I take the Big 12 seriously? Well, maybe they don't say that. Because in this scenario, maybe someone flexed out there. Maybe a couple of teams flexed out there enough where they're not talking like that. So is there a TCU-esque run? Another Kansas State? Is there, is there one of those in Lubbock or Baylor? Might we, in Ames, Iowa, might we go on a little cyclonic run of our own to the Big 12 championship game? Because we deserve it, I'll tell you that. Fun game of what if tonight. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here and this season takes it to a whole new level old school legends modern power players and ex-lovers are all competing in cape town south africa for the prize of three hundred thousand dollars and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast listen to mtv's official challenge podcast wherever you get your podcasts i got some fun for you how about playing sports outdoors how about that how about playing football and I know some of you, especially with little ones running around, sometimes you can be on the fence about such things. Why? Well, you could get hurt playing football. Well, that's true. And that's where our friends at Academy Sports and Outdoors come in. I would like you, if you are listening on podcast, to just imagine a world where little Johnny, 12, 13 years old, I don't know Johnny's birth certificate, but I do know that when he straps it up, when he puts the lid on, when he goes out there on the field... You wince every time there's a collision, right? Well, what if he just put bubble wrap on his head? Well, that would be soft, and it would look weird. You don't have to put literal bubble wrap. You can save that for UPS and FedEx. What you can do is get a Guardian cap and put it on that helmet, which is pretty much what every college football team practices with now, and it reduces that impact a significant amount. For that matter, it reduces temperature when it's 105 degrees outside in mid-August. It reduces temperature. And the reason I'm mentioning it right now is because for the time being, they are exclusively sold at Academy Sports and Outdoors. Now, if you're listening on podcast, you can't see the bright, pretty pictures I'm showing you. But if you're watching on pod or on YouTube, you can see it. One of 47 trillion different things, that's a rough estimate, that you can get when you go to Academy Sports and Outdoors. So I would strongly encourage you guys, you know, at the very least, do your research on it. But I, I, always, I always talk when anyone asks me about, you know, safety of the game. I always talk about the advancements they've made. And a lot of the horror stories and a lot of the terrible headlines you see are the end result of the style that the game was played in 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Well, practice has been altered significantly. Like, no one even says two-a-days anymore, much less 
does them. And you've also got a lot more understanding of collisions and how that actually works, head injuries and how that actually works, and preventative measures that you can take, not to eliminate the risk, but to greatly reduce the risk. So Academy Sports and Outdoors got those guardian hats for helmet. It's like Pedro Serrano, hats for bat, but we've got hats for helmet here. So this is not major league. Thank you so much to Academy Sports and Outdoors in town this week for SEC Media Days. Looking forward to seeing them. All right, we had a question from the old mailbag that I couldn't get to the other day from Douglasville, Georgia, no less. Got a lot of uh, famous families from that portion of the country. I was going to give you inside joke, but it's literally so inside, only like five people from my hometown would get it, so I'm not going to waste your time. Al from Douglasville, Georgia said, have you done that hinge game segment for this year yet? Al, no, we have not. And Al's talking about something we do every year where we start to look at the whole schedule grid and I pick out the games that the entire season is going to hinge on. And it's not always these marquee matchups featuring top five versus top five. Sometimes it is, but it's almost common sense. Those are hinge games. Let me give you an example. Texas A&M at Miami in week two. That's a hinge game. Think about the divergent paths that these two teams' respective seasons will take based on the outcome of that game. It's a non-conference game. It's week two. But yet, I'm, I'm looking at teams here that don't have playoff hopes necessarily. They've got hopes, but no one's talking about Miami and A&M in the playoff picture. So you may think, why are you picking this game as a hinge game? Because they both have sky-high standards and expectations. Texas A&M and Miami truly, as a fan base, fancy themselves as programs that, when things are right, should be in the thick of the playoff conversation. They're not wrong. Things just haven't been right. They're not wrong about that. Well, the point is, it's a fact they're going to play each other in week two, and it's a fact one of them's going to win and probably inflate the bubble a little bit too much when it comes to expectations, but here's the downside. One of them's going to lose. That's also a fact. And so before they even get in conference play, either A&M or Miami's already going to have a loss. Don't really care what the score is, but if it's embarrassing, that's its own kettle of fish, as Meemaw would say. Uh, Texas A&M, I, w- I just want to paint you a frightening picture here. Let's say Texas A&M goes down there and loses. They will already be 1-1 one and one with games against Auburn, Arkansas neutral site, against Bama, at Tennessee, South Carolina, at Ole Miss, Mississippi State, and at LSU still to go. The standard is not let's make a bowl there. The standard is not let's get back to seven or eight wins. They don't have time for that, nor should they have time for that. So I'm not criticizing you guys. And conversely, down at Miami, if they lose that game, and if they're, let's just say they're one and one, I don't want to overlook Miami of Ohio. Someone warned me about that the other day. Let's just, for the sake of fun here and time constraints, let's say they're one and one. Miami's got a really treacherous road when it comes to ACC play. So they would still have games at North Carolina, Clemson, at NC State, at FSU, Louisville. They go to Boston College in late November. That's doing you no favors if you live pretty much anywhere, but especially in South Florida. So anyway, my point is, if they've already got a loss before they get into those weeds, it is not going to be pleasant. That is a major hinge game. Also in week two, in fact, I've got three of them in week two. In Tuscaloosa, 
Texas at Alabama in week two is the definition of a hinge game. If you told me this was the game you were looking most forward to out of any game on the schedule this year, I wouldn't push back too hard on you. And that's not even a conference game. But there's a funny thing, really funny thing about Bryant-Denny Stadium and the reputation there. When you see all these lists, when Big Game Boomer, for instance, goes down the route of putting out a list of the most hostile stadiums, when Brandon Walker makes a mistake and starts to talk, period, and he happens to choose to talk about the most hostile environments in college football, Bryant-Denny Stadium's never on the list. It's never in the top three or top four, and if you didn't know any better, this is probably a good time for our buddy the alien to check in. Our buddy the alien portals down, hey buddy, and he says, why is this cathedral in Tuscaloosa where they put 101,000 plus in there every Saturday? You got to imagine him talking in his vernacular. Why is it not on the hostile stadiums list? And I would say to the alien, they've been too good. And he would say, that does not compute. That does not compute where I'm from. And I would tell him, yeah, well, here's the thing about it. Humans down here, we have a thing called complacency. And we have a thing called getting drunk on success. And when you win a whole lot, you never feel threatened. Bama fans never feel threatened at home. They never feel threatened. They never or hardly ever go into their home venue as anything less than a three-plus touchdown favorite. The last time I was in that building and they felt threatened as a collective was 2019 when Joe Burrow and Ed Orgeron and LSU came in there. Bama fans legitimately thought they could lose that day, even if they did most things right. As a result, the place was on fire. Unbelievable. You could take that stadium that afternoon, and I'd put it against pretty much anything. It's just they rarely feel that way. Well, they will feel that way on this night, is my point. And they'll feel that way, for that matter, when LSU comes in there, and they'll feel that way when Tennessee comes in there. And so if you're a season ticket holder for Alabama, and you've been force-fed a crap schedule in the recent past, not this year. Get your money's worth this year. I'm looking forward to it for that reason. I'm looking forward to this for the same reason we look forward to Bossman versus Undertaker, Hell in a Cell at WrestleMania 15, and we all remember how that turned out. A man's hanging from the roof, and the commentator is screaming, is this symbolic? Is this man hanging? Is this symbolic? If Texas wins against Alabama, is it symbolic? And you know where I'm going with this. Way too much would be made of one outcome, but that's what we do in college football. It would be uh, the old changing of the guard. It would be, it, certainly it would be Texas is back. I mean, can you imagine? They wouldn't even bother to hit the caps lock button and lowercase it. It would just be Texas is back, all caps. And then maybe your subheadline is, is Nick Saban leaving? Is, is Alabama not ever going to be what they were? Um, there, there's always that. That's the nature of a hinge game, but there's a flip side to the hinge game. What if Bama just wins 47 to 23? What if they just run Texas out of the building? And all of a sudden you look at them and say, hold up now. thought they were supposed to have a weakness offensively. 23 points. Well, that Texas offense looks like the secondary carried their water effectively. But, I mean, what if Bama just rolls? You know, that's that team that's supposed to have a, supposed to have a, a little Achilles heel, if you will this season offensively? What if they run the ball against Texas like Michigan did against Penn State last year? What if they do that? What if that's the outcome? So it's a hinge game, friends, a big-time hinge game. There is no margin for error. Whoever loses this one, when it comes to the playoff, you leave Tuscaloosa that night, one and one. If you're Texas, 
thanks for scheduling up. Everyone just thinks you are what your record says you are at the end of the day, and so the committee will not really care that you scheduled up and ditto with Alabama. So that's a big-time hinge game. Also in week two, G5 Josh is here to let you know that Tulane, out of all the G5 programs, has the highest preseason win total in all of college football. Yay! And they've got one Power 5 opponent on their schedule and a sweet logo in that order. And it's Ole Miss. Ole Miss comes in there in week two. You heard me right. Ole Miss goes to Tulane in week two. What's going to happen that afternoon is a massive, massive hinge moment for college football. Because if you're trying to find that G5 team to be your playoff buster this year, it can't be UCF. They're not there anymore. Can't be Houston. Can't be Cincinnati. It can't be some of the old reliable go-tos. They're not there anymore. So what are you left with? Well, you're left with programs like Tulane. Tulane most recently noted for going 2-10 one year and 12-2 the next year. Most recently noted for beating USC in the Cotton Bowl. It's the only Power 5 opponent on their schedule, this Week 2 game against Ole Miss. So it'll be whatever a Super Bowl atmosphere is down there, be a Super Bowl atmosphere. Uh, They needed a springboard year, too. So if you remember Cincinnati, when they made the playoff a couple of years ago, not only did they have a good enough year that year, but they were already on everyone's radar because of the previous year. And so that's normally what it takes for the G5. And it's no different with Tulane. They popped on everyone's radar last year, so people will take them seriously enough this year where if they beat Ole Miss, they make a statement against them, and then they run the table and some other things fall their way, which is the way it should be if you only play one Power 5 team, they could make the playoff. Ole Miss, if they were to lose that game, Their remaining schedule. Colin, do we have that, by the way? Because I did not even write it down. Irresponsible, I know. Uh, The Ole Miss schedule, you know it. It, They got to play in the SEC West. So if they they start one and one, they got Georgia Tech the next week, and then they go to Bama, they got LSU, they got Arkansas, they go to Auburn, they got A&M at Georgia, at Mississippi State. It's just brutal. And so I would recommend, I don't know if Lane Kiffin's watching tonight, I would recommend just going ahead and winning the game. If they do win that game, you have greatly reduced the likelihood that you have a G5 team in the mix come season's end. Let's go to week eight, and let's, let's hop on the old PJ. Let's go all the way out to the West Coast, and let's go to USC. You know who they play in week eight? They play Utah. Remember that game last year? You should be asking me which one. They played in Salt Lake City. I think it was 43 to 42, something like that. And then they played again in the Pac-12 championship game, and Utah rolls. You had the Caleb Williams injury. He still played, but he was injured. Uh, Utah won. They went 2-0 against them last year. And all they have this year to show for it is a preseason win total of 8.5, while Southern Cal sitting there at 10. This was the game out there last year, and it may be the game out there this year. It's kind of at the early outset of that whole round-robin that we're going to have middle of the season on in the Pac-12. Remember about a month ago we did that show and I said, boom, boom, boom. Every week the Pac-12 is throwing these really good games at you if you're wise enough to actually look out there and ignore the reputation the conference has built and look at the teams this year. It's a really good collection of teams this year. It also could be a little record versus reality situation. And record versus reality happens sometimes when one team has played a front-loaded schedule and another team hasn't. So that team's already been bitten, and they're in wounded animal mode, and you got a team that's without blemish, and yet the team that's already been wounded looks like the more 
physical team, the more put together team, the better functioning team. Well, sometimes it's just that they've been battle tested more and they've had a chance to be exposed more. And the other teams always had flaws. You just didn't see them because they hadn't had that water pressure applied quite yet. USC will have played Notre Dame the week before they play this game. So if there are situations where maybe USC physically still doesn't match up up front, Notre Dame will go a decent way in exposing that. And if they don't get the job done, Utah will. And if neither of them get the job done, well, might we and might you guys in the Lincoln-Riley-Hater community need to acknowledge, eh, maybe a little bit better defensively this year? Maybe. Still got the same staff out there, so who knows? Maybe. USC to the Big Ten is going to see them play a lot more games of this caliber. And so I think the last thing on any Trojan fan's mind on their way out the door is let's continue to get put on skates against these more physical teams. No, thank you. Let's go to week 11. We got people in our building looking very much forward to this one. Michigan at Penn State. All the way in week 11. Yeah. Penn State's already played Ohio State by this point. Does anyone know the outcome there? Well, we will by the time this game is played. So our hinge is as follows. Either Penn State is in desperation survival mode, or they've got the brightest spotlight on them that they've had since James Franklin's been there. Because if they beat Ohio State, they are playing for the division championship in this game in all likelihood. I mean, if they beat Ohio State, they got Michigan coming into their building with an opportunity to wrap the East up, again, in all likelihood, and keep both of them out of the Big Ten championship game, and they got to hope for like a playoff at large bid or something like that, whatever we call that. So that's that. But also, this is the game last year where Michigan decided to hang 418 rushing yards. Not in the series history, guys. That was what happened on one Saturday afternoon last year, just assault. So we don't want that. And when you look defensively at all three levels, at what Manny Diaz is going to be able to throw out there on the field, and then you could also consider what, what Beaver Stadium sounds like when Michigan goes in there. Hard to imagine that happening again. But then again, my eyeballs couldn't believe what they were seeing last year, and it did happen. That is a big-time hinge game. You know, if Michigan wins that one, I don't, I don't really love saying this. That's their first major test of the year, week 11, first major test. And then they've, of course, got Ohio State at the end of the year. If Michigan wins that one, of course, they're set up, and they got a lot of runway, probably some wiggle room. And so for obvious reasons, probably that game the most obvious, there are hinge components in that one for sure. I uh, love that you guys are watching live. So I know that a lot of you on Twitter participated today in what I'm about to ask you. I'm going I'm to tell you what we're about to talk about, then I'm going to ask for a favor, and then we're going to dive into it. If you're listening on podcasts, if you're watching on YouTube, just start to gather in your mind what you think about Hugh Freeze. New Auburn head coach, Hugh Freeze. He'll be in Nashville this week for SEC Media Days. We'll get to talk to him. Hugh Freeze, what you think about him? And then once you get all that, all that out of the way, what do you think about him as a football coach? Because I know no one's leading with that. So think about that. I need you to do me one favor, a couple of them really. If you haven't already subscribed, we're getting really good traction right now. So you're, you guys are pulling this off. Let's continue. If you've already subscribed, thank you so much. It's time to go after mom. It's time to go after, go after your cousin. Uh, you got a bunch of people, by the way, who you already know are college football diehards. And you got some that maybe you know are watching inferior products out there. And there are a lot of good ones out there. We don't claim to be the only one. We got a bunch of good ones. Just, 
Don't let friends watch bad college football content. It's what I'm saying. We think we've got a good show here, one of a few. So bring them over here and then tell them subscribe. And then when they say I can't afford it, tell them it's free. Just click the button and then forget about it. Subscriptions are what drive the boat. I asked you guys like a minute ago, what do you think about Hugh Freeze? Never has a sip from the chalice been necessary before a segment, more so than right now. Because some of you went down that road today, that road where someone's mother, someone's children could be reading this on Twitter, and you did it anyway. All right, here's your end point, Colin. The old opinion game, we've been playing it for the better part of two months now with head coaches. What is your opinion on this guy, on that guy? And today I asked, what is your opinion on Hugh Freeze? New head coach at Auburn, SEC Media Days this week. They're getting ready to gear it up. They've been really good in the transfer portal, pretty good in recruiting. This was the most universally negative basket of feedback that I've gotten from you on any coach. Not surprising. None of it had to do with football. And so most people who aren't living under a rock, they know the story of Hugh Freeze, how it ended at Ole Miss. He goes to Liberty. Now he's at Auburn. And there was that great big dust up publicly, nationally, and locally about whether they were making the right move in hiring him. Now, we've got several videos on the channel if you want to go back and listen to what I said at the time about Auburn giving him a second chance. And uh, you guys thought what you thought, I thought what I thought. But mine is not a Hugh Freeze thing. Like most things that are said about him are true, even if they're said in a hateful way. I mean, there's a lot about the guy's past that's just public knowledge, it's public record. So it would do me no good to try and defend it. You can think whatever you want to about it. It's out there. Auburn decided it wasn't detrimental enough that they shouldn't hire him. So they brought him in there. And I said at the time, and I'll say again, I just kind of have different standards for what should make a guy unhirable. And it's unpopular. I think more than 50% of you disagree with me on this. But my take has always been, ask three questions. Number one, Will this hire do irreparable, yeah, irreparable harm to the university? Will the hire do irreparable harm to the university? Question number two, is anyone going to be placed in immediate danger by this guy being hired? And question number three, and this is the ultimate, what are parents of prospective athletes going to think about it? Because if they're not willing to send their sons to play for you, the rest of it's a moot point, no matter how you answered those questions. Well, I think they're going to be okay there when it comes to that. It doesn't mean I have to endorse the decisions that Hugh Freeze has made in the past. It doesn't even matter whether I think his apologies are sincere or not. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because a lot of the feedback I got from you guys today was this and that, and he's guilty of this, guilty of that, and I don't really care because I don't think there's an authentic bone in his body. Hey, let's just go devil's advocate. Let's just say all that's true. Those are the three questions I always go back to. I, I think the standard for what you have to be morally and what your life's history has to be in terms of being spot-free is held to a way higher standard for being a football coach than it needs to be. That's what I've always thought. It's not a game coached by angels. It's not a game played by angels. Angels don't watch the game. None of them are watching my show right now. There's not one talking into this mic. Don't be fooled by the white shirt. I screw up just as much as the next guy. And it's not to endorse behavior. It's nothing like that. I'm just as grossed out by some of that stuff as you guys are. 
I just think we're coaching football, man. We're playing a game. And also, sometimes it helps if a kid who's 18 or 19 years old can see someone just spectacularly implode in on themselves like a dying star, then go rehabilitate their image, and then get another shot. And maybe Ole Miss was a learning procedure for Hugh Freeze, and maybe he never even so much as has a hiccup at Auburn. It's a pretty good thing to watch, regardless of what you think about his past. So, you know, that's where I was on all of it. I didn't make nearly as big a deal of it as a lot of people did. Uh, Here's what I did not hear today and what I don't plan on hearing. I don't plan on hearing anyone say, oh, Hugh Freeze isn't a good enough football coach. He's going to fail there. I'm rooting against him because he's not a good enough football coach. Wasn't much of that for obvious reasons. Guy's won double-digit games everywhere he's been. Lambooth, that's an NAIA in the Mid-South. He won there. Arkansas State, double-digit wins. Liberty, right after Ole Miss, where he also won double-digit games. Double-digit wins at Liberty. Is he going to do that at Auburn? Hmm, that's what we're here to find out, isn't it? They are recruiting well. They are portaling more than well. The portal rank is number five right now in the 2023 portal cycle. They had 11 four-star prospects as part of that portal cycle. That's the most of any team in America. That includes your Colorados, your your USC's. They had more high-level talent out of that portal than anyone. So here's where I have landed. It really doesn't matter what I just said because there is no justification or there's no counter evidence that someone who's grossed out by Hugh Freeze is going to hear and all of a sudden say, all right, I guess I, I'm, I'm okay with him. Never mind. Team Hugh. In Hugh, I trust. There's none of that. I know that. I'm not trying to change your mind. Uh, what I will do is I'll play a little sarcastic game with you for a second, especially my Georgia viewers, my Bama viewers, LSU I heard a lot from today. If this guy is really as toxic as you claim he is, if this is really the no-win proposition you claim it to be, isn't it a really good thing for you he's at Auburn? Isn't it? Shouldn't you be celebrating this? Because I had a lot of anger and, and vitriol in a lot of the res- replies I saw today, and best I could tell, it was a bunch of replies from Georgia and the more northwesterly parts of Alabama, um, Louisiana, like I said. So I would say, if you guys believe what you're telling me, He's right where you would want him to be. Right where I need to be is a great Gary Allen song that I quite literally just remembered, so I'm going to write that down for later. Right where I need to be. Smoke Rings in the Dark is a great uh, Gary Allen tune as well. Uh, in case you hadn't noticed, that's the end of the Hugh Freeze segment. But let me, let me pop this post-it, because they're watching us in Avon, Connecticut, Coral Gables, Florida, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, just all over the place. I mean, if you missed the early part of the show, we had... We had Vietnam check in today. So, worldwide audience. College football, very much a global thing. No matter what Captain Cons tries to tell you about ignoring the countdown until we get three weeks out. No, 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 no. Ignore the hits that Casual FM is playing. This is the life all year round. No off season. We just do it all year round. Immunity. Let's dive into bold predictions, shall we? Bold predictions, what are you believing out there? And as we get deeper into July and certainly August, I know some of you have even more boldness in you that's going to eventually come out. But here's what we have for tonight. And we're going all over the country here, by the way. So I appreciate you guys for mixing it up a little bit. First bold prediction is from Digital Dam. And there's even a little beaver emoji for good measure. He said, Oregon State versus USC in the Pac-12 championship game from Beaverton, Oregon. This is an 8.75 on the boldness scale. 
Oregon State's never been there. They've never been to the conference championship game. This is the number one team in odds and the number five team in preseason odds for the Pac-12 championship. They don't play in the regular season, which is crazy because if you look at the odds on your screen right now, it goes USC, Oregon, Washington, Utah, Oregon State, UCLA's number six. Literally everyone else plays everyone else. USC, Oregon State's one of the only matchups in that top half dozen there where you don't see that round robin effect. They each play everyone else, though, so at least that's good. Last year, USC was the number one offense in the Pac-12. Last year, Oregon State, number one defense in the Pac-12. And if that tracks this year, you would get a heck of a Pac-12 championship matchup. Also, Jonathan Smith would all of a sudden announce his arrival on the national stage. You should have already known about him. But think about if we go with the what-if route here. If it's Oregon State in the Pac-12 championship game, might DJ Uyangalale be comeback player of the year? Yeah, I would think probably so if they end up there. Nevertheless, you know the rule around here. It's really hard to peg specific matchups, and especially if you're trying to pick a team that's never been there before. 8.75, that's how bold that prediction is. Next up, Blaze hit us up. And he said two ACC teams will make the college football playoff. Well, that's a 9.5 on the boldness scale where I come from, Blaze. The conference hasn't had a playoff appearance in the last two years. So let's worry about getting one in there. What if I told you, though, that this has happened? I know the historians out there amongst us may say, oh, that's a bold prediction. The ACC has never had two teams in the playoff. Yeah, they have. And it happened recently. It happened in 2020. And you're thinking to yourself, liar? Oh, sucks for him. That's a live show. He can't go back and edit that out. Well, A, I could, but I'm not. Because B, I'm right. Clemson made it that year. And you know who else made it that year? Notre Dame. Well, they're independent, Josh. They weren't that year. Producer Jesse, with just a a paper-popping stat of the day, 2020, one year only, Notre Dame in the ACC. Yeah, they sure did. The ACC sent two teams to the playoff that year. As for this happening this year, remember, there's not a divisional structure anymore. And so you can't take the classical route of, let me beat you in the regular season so that you got one loss while I go undefeated. I go to the conference championship game and win it. And then on Selection Sunday, your resume looks sparkling because I'm your only loss and I'm one of the best teams in the country too. So you come with me in the playoff. You can't go that route. You probably have to go like the 2021 Georgia-Bama route maybe where you guys, well, it wouldn't even be like that. So you play in the regular season. Let's say Clemson beats Florida State. You guys need to meet in the ACC championship game, and then Florida State needs to beat Clemson, and then you have to get a favorable draw nationally, and the committee has to be able to look and say, yeah, I think we do have enough room for both of them. You need competition nationally you need things to fall the right way and also here's here's a really good indication of how convoluted this gets scheduling wise out of the top four teams in terms of preseason odds here in the ACC Clemson plays three of the four along with Notre Dame Florida State plays two of the four and they also play LSU Louisville only plays one of the four so keep an eye on the cards North Carolina plays two of the four Miami plays four of the four, and they play Texas A&M. So if you're getting two of these teams in the playoff, I assume you think Clemson and someone, and maybe it's Florida State. It's not going to be easy. This is a 9.5 on the boldness scale. Next up, 
We're going to Columbia, Missouri. Matt thinks Missouri's going 9-3. and three, And ironically, he checks in from Charleston, South Carolina. Well, this is a 9 on the boldness scale, Matt. For a team whose preseason over-under win total is 6.5. For a team who's got Kansas State on the schedule, along with your Georgias and LSUs and Tennessees. A team, like I just said, the preseason over-under win total is 6.5. Had some close losses last year, so there is a case to be made here. But because of those reasons, it's a 9 on the boldness scale. Now, what is the case if this does happen? What is the case for a 9-3 and three Missouri team? Well, they are number 2 in all of FBS in returning production. I know some of you value that stat and some of you don't. Choose your path. I'm just giving you the numbers. They are one of two teams nationally who are top 10 in returning offensive and returning defensive production. Again, make of that what you will. There is a clear path to a 4-1 and one start. Colin, could you do me a favor, and could you throw up their schedule right quick? Because for the second time in the show, I forgot to write it down. So they play South Dakota, Middle Tennessee State, Kansas State, and Memphis the first four weeks of the season. Uh, a Vegas odds maker would tell you that should be a three and one start. And then they go to Vandy to open conference play. So there's a path now there's runway to start four and one. And if they beat Kansas state, maybe five and zero there, Kansas state's the toughest draw out of those first five games. And then it, it gets demonstrably tougher after that, but they don't need to go 12 and zero. They need to go nine and three. They get Vandy and Arkansas later in the year. They go to Arkansas the last game of the season. They'll be rested versus Georgia. Now, they're going to be a significant underdog going to Georgia, but they got to buy before they go to Athens. Georgia plays Florida the week before they play Missouri, and for good measure, this was the closest Georgia came to being upset in the regular season last year. So I haven't forgotten that, and if I'm trying to make the case here, I also should remind you, yeah, they went 6-7. and seven. They had four losses by one possession. If all that breaks right, 9-3, and three, that's why it's not a 10 on the boldness scale, but it is a 9. Let's go up north, and let's go late in the year. Let's talk about something happening that hasn't happened in like a decade. Dan from Fremont, Nebraska says Wisconsin wins the Big Ten West and wins the Big Ten title game. Well, the West is 0-9 versus the East in Big Ten championship games, and this is it because they're done with divisions. So got to get it done now or forever hold your peace. To get there is one thing. Okay, so to get to the Big Ten title game, Wisconsin's got better odds than anyone. They're the favorite in the East. So if you just told me they're going to get there, that's like a five on the boldness scale. That's not bold at all. This division's had a new winner like each of the last four or five years. What do we learn in week nine? That's what I want to know. You want to mix a little what if in here? Well, let's look at week nine. That is October 28th. For those of you keeping score at home, that's when Ohio State goes to Wisconsin. And after that, we, we don't really have anything that would be in the way of a hypothetical Big Ten championship matchup on the rest of Wisconsin's schedule. So that's kind of when we need to learn what we learned. They don't play Penn State. They don't play Michigan, which in and of itself makes them a prime contender to win their division. But when they get there, what would we see? Hey, Jesse, um, come in my... Speak to me in my ear, please, and tell me what Wisconsin's uh, line was. Was it 10 and a half on that Ohio State game? 10? Okay, straight up 10. So just simple mathematics would tell you if Vegas is installing Ohio State as a 10-point favorite in Madison, if you just let's just shave three and a half for the sake of argument. 
off of that for home field edge. Put them on a neutral site. They're telling you probably your line today in the Big Ten title game would be Ohio State minus 13.5 or minus 14. It would be somewhere in that range, maybe 14.5 if they want to make you pay a premium to take the Buckeyes. So we've seen bigger upsets, but that's if the game was already set. The first thing you have to do, the first task at hand, is take a brand-new head coach with a brand-new team and a bunch of transfer portal guys, including your starting quarterback, and get them there. And so because you have all that wrapped in, I'm going to say this is a 9 on the boldness scale. I mean, getting there is one thing. Winning it is something totally different. It's going to be a fun team to watch this year, though. Uh, Let's continue rolling on. Got two more things. You know, surprisingly, I thought we were going to be under an hour tonight. Frankly, I got things to do later, so I tried to keep it under an hour. But we can't do it because we're too jam-packed. Let's talk about the Clemson Tigers for just a second. If you don't mind, I want to put the spotlight on Clemson, South Carolina. We've been doing this with a lot of teams. What are the biggest questions here? What's the best position group? Who's the breakout player? What do we think about the schedule? It's like our own little preview magazine, but we're not wasting paper around here because there's one thing I care about. It is conserving paper in this office. Question number one. It's like a rubber band. It's like a rubber... What would be rubber band ball? Yeah, it's like a rubber band ball. So I'm going to throw it at you, and I'm just going to say offense. But there's a whole lot here. And one of the rubber bands is, hey, we got Garrett Riley there now. How's he going to pan out? And also another rubber band is close behind there. How is he going to utilize their receiver core? And then one of the other rubber bands is Cade Klubnick. Who will he be as the quarterback under Garrett Riley at Clemson? A lot of fascinating ideas to throw around. Uh, Dabo as, as much as he's reluctant to go in the portal, boy, he hit a grand slam with that coordinator hire. And you remember this time last year when Mario went and got Josh Gaddis and everyone did cartwheels and it was a disaster because behind the scenes, people didn't think Gaddis was nearly as good as the folks out in front thought he was. That's not the case here. You ask folks in the industry about Garrett Riley, they think he's, he's the real deal. And they think Dabo hit a home run getting him. So that's the first question. The second question is this Clemson defensive line going to be like the ones they've had, those vintage Clemson defensive lines? Can, can the defensive line play up to the standard when you lose a Miles Murphy, when you lose a Brian Brzee, when you lose K.J. Henry? Is the depth and quality of production going to be there? Because the first word, just depth, oh, they've recruited very well. And they've got some names in that room. But it takes a two-deep to roll out there and play at a pretty high level and like all of them need to pan out. The depth is there. I don't doubt the depth. I don't doubt a lot of names. Uh, The overall production level. In other words, the ability to take over a game. Remember when they played NC State last year and NC State could not move the ball because their offensive line kept getting wrecked? That kind of performance or something similar, that's the kind of thing that bails you out when your offense is not up to par. Now, maybe that's a moot point because maybe Clemson's offense is back this year. But that's, that's question number two. Question number three, will we see portal regret? Because to this point, it's not even a term. So let me add a note to trademark that. Uh, portal regret, trademark pending, is that thing where you could have gone in the portal and gotten some players and you didn't voluntarily. You said, nah, we're good. And then you may play a team like Florida State that's built off the portal and they spank you and beat you 27-17 in your own building. And all of a sudden, the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth questions in the postgame press conference are, uh, Dabo, do you regret not going and getting more players out of the portal? Voila, portal regret, depending on whether he says yes or no. Do we have portal regret there? 
And that's going to be a story far beyond just this year with Dabo and Clemson. Uh, what is the best position group on this team, do you think? We think it's linebacker. We look at the names in that linebacker room. Jeremiah Trotter, Barrett Carter were third and fourth on the team in tackles last year. Trotter is second-team All-American last year. And, hey, Jesse, is the spelling on Woodaz, is it W-O-O-D-A-Z? Yes. Okay, it's just a really, really unique last name, so I always have to check because the last thing you want is a mad parent in your DMs. Like, when I mispronounced a Jai Hall that one year, oh, my goodness, never heard the end of it. So Wade Woodaz, he played in every game last year. He is really going to be a focal point of that Clemson linebacker core this year. Linebacker's a really good position for them right now. The breakout player on this team, though, I'm going to a position group we talk about way too much with Clemson, and it's been negative as of late, and that's been receiver. Receiver in the mid-20-teens was dynamite on this team. Lately, it's been anything but. And Bo Collins, that's the guy that I think could really shine this year. He's 6'3", 210. He's a rising junior. He played, he started 10 games last year. 22 catches, uh, 373 yards, five touchdowns. Those numbers do not stand out at all. I know that. But think about where we are in the here and now. Think about Garrett Riley coming in. Think about what he just did at TCU. Think about featuring a player like Quentin Johnson. And then ask, who is the closest thing on this roster to Quentin Johnson? And I think it may very well be Bo Collins. So I don't know what my over-under on receiving yards for the year for him would be, but it'd be well north of 373. The schedule bears repeating here. We talked about this early in the show, but don't overlook Duke. I'm not going to tell you that anymore. I've, I've said it far too often, but that Duke game, 12-point spread on it. It's not just an imminent blowout in week one. Standalone game, Labor Day night. So that's how Clemson starts their season. But also... They got the Florida State game, one of the games of the year, probably the game of the year in the ACC. They go to Miami. There's a stretch after their bye week. They go to Miami and to NC State, back-to-back road games. Then Notre Dame at home. Then they get Tech in there, Georgia Tech. They got North Carolina at home and then at South Carolina to end the year. South Carolina beat them last year. So it is, uh, it's, it's kind of a backloaded schedule for them. Uh, Florida State, Notre Dame, North Carolina is so funny because sometimes I'll write things in parentheses. Like, I just started to go down a road there where there were some things in parentheses, and I hope that my mind figures it out as I'm reading the thing off. And I got Florida State, Notre Dame, North Carolina with three numbers in parentheses next to their name. I have no earthly idea what I wrote it down for. I'm sure it was good, though. So thank you, Jesse. Really good work there. That's the Clemson spotlight. Now, the last thing that you guys wanted me to talk about tonight, let me take a little sip here. is we got a ruling, we got an announcement, the white smoke appeared in Indianapolis over NCAA headquarters, and we got a ruling from the NCAA. How about that? News Dump Friday special. And Brad asked me, what are your thoughts on the NCAA's ruling on Tennessee regarding its violations? Well, here was the punishment, if you've been out in left field on this. They got to pay $8 million in fine. They have a total reduction of 28 scholarships. A lot of that is already been scholarships served. Uh, They are vacating 11 wins. Oh, man, what a dagger to the chest. All of a sudden, you were ordered not to remember watching those games Tennessee won. And Jeremy Pruitt has a six-year show cause and a one-year automatic suspension. 
That was the long and short of the punishment. I told you guys I thought this was the path forward for the NCAA. So the path forward, I think, is they're terrified of getting sued when they hand down these these decisions, and uh, it looked like that may have been a factor here for reasons I'm going to read you in a second. They're just going to fine schools a ton of money. That's what they're going to start doing. And by the way, that's what they should do. Those kids on campus right now shouldn't be paying a, a price for what a former coaching staff did. You know what else kind of sucks here that no one talks about? The recruiting staff that was at Tennessee. And I'm not talking about coaches, man. I'm talking about people whose names you don't know. Like a lot of young girls, a lot of young guys that work behind the scenes, don't make a ton of money. They're looking to forge a name for themselves and work their way up the ladder. And they're involved in something. They're, they're not spearheading. They're doing what they're told. And they get blacklisted. They don't get to get jobs anywhere. That part sucks, and no one's going to talk about it. So I guess I will for like 15 seconds. But back to the matter at hand. When I'm college football commissioner, and eventually just take over the NCAA, and I handle investigations myself, you're just going to get fined a ton of money. And we, we will take care of things internally. That's what we'll do. Also... They're going to hammer the guilty party. So Jeremy Pruitt, I mean, I can tell you confidently, I think Pruitt thought that his time served, because he hadn't coached since 2020, I think Pruitt thought his time served and maybe maybe one or two more years, that was going to be it. And the NCAA said, absolutely not. Tennessee, your former employer is going to pay us a ton of money, and you are out. And even if someone wants to hire you, even after the show cause part of it, if he gets hired, there's an automatic one-year suspension where you can't do anything. And I don't know if he's going to challenge it legally. I'd kind of be surprised if he didn't, but I don't have any information on that. That's the way it's going to happen. The guilty parties are going to get hammered. Uh, the university is going to get hammered. And that's the way it'll be moving forward. Now, there is this interesting tidbit, paper pop worthy, from the Knoxville News Sentinel earlier today. And that was that the Tennessee Attorney General threatened legal action if the NCAA delivered a postseason ban. And the NCAA has the legal standing of an accordion. I mean, you're talking about like spine of jellyfish style up there. So they folded on that. No postseason ban, nor should there have been. But let me tell you what they did do. As I read earlier, yeah, you got the fine. Yeah, you got the scholarship reduction. They took away 11 wins Tennessee had. You saw them win the games. I saw them win the games. And the NCAA is still living in a world. In that bubble of theirs, they live in a world where they truly think like Boom, boom, like a clapper system. You turn the lights off at night. They've got a clapper system in Indianapolis. And all of a sudden, you hit that double clap. Those wins never happen. The most casual behavior imaginable is how I would classify it for anyone out there wondering what I think about it. I firmly believe, I firmly believe there is coming a day where a future generation looks back on the NCAA vacating wins as a punishment tool, the same way that we look back on the fact that doctors used to prescribe cigarettes to cure asthma in the 50s. Like, you can't breathe? Here, puff on this lung dart. That should help you. Well, that's crazy. About as crazy as vacating wins as a punitive measure for something that we all saw happen and nothing about saying that history didn't happen changes the fact that it did happen. So yeah, that is where we are in Knoxville. The good news for our friends over there is you should be set moving forward. I mean, this is Josh Heupel got this news. This was not something that made Josh Heupel say, honey, pack our boxes. We're moving. We're out of here. This is a dead end job. It's nothing like that. So I, I know there were a lot of happy texts that I got from Knoxville 
about, oh, 15 minutes after Ross Dellinger and the boys dropped that story. That's our show for tonight. I appreciate you guys being tuned in. Make sure, make sure, make sure that you like the video and subscribe to the channel or subscribe to the podcast. Quick reminder, we will have a live show Tuesday night. You know where it's going to be live from? It's going to be live from Nashville, Tennessee. And same thing for Thursday. But until then, for producer Jesse, for director Colin, for Chelsea, who's on her way back to beautiful Columbus, Georgia after tonight, Bradley the Associate, I'm Josh Pate. Take care. Have a great start to your week. It's going to be jam-packed here. And God bless. God bless.